welcome to the A-Level RE podcast. This podcast follows on from my two previous episodes on the omniscience of God, where we look firstly at whether God's perfect and complete knowledge impacts upon my future decision making, and then free will and moral responsibility, where we ask to what extent can we claim to be free in the decisions that we face, or whether there are factors outside of our control which determine our actions. Today, we're going to explore the question of whether I can still have moral responsibility when the God of classical theism is both all-powerful and all-knowing, and whether it was theoretically possible for God to have made humans who always freely choose to do the right thing. We're going to start by looking at the Protestant Christian teaching of predestination. So sit back, grab a cuppa, and enjoy. Human freedom is essential in Christianity. It underpins the personal relationship between humans and God, which is expressed through the process of repentance, forgiveness, atonement and absolution. Human freedom is often presented as the reason for the existence of moral evil and therefore absolving God of the responsibility for it. According to supporters of the free will defence, human free will is so valuable, God decided it was worth the risk of evil which accompanies it. The stories of creation and the fall in Genesis illustrate that God created humans with the potential to disobey, to do wrong, to sin, precisely because he wanted a loving relationship which was freely chosen by humans rather than just creating automata, that's robots, whose obedience and devotion could be taken for granted. However, the idea that humans are able to run around, living as they want to, either following God's laws or not, and God is unable to intervene, unable to stop humans from committing atrocious acts of evil, poses a couple of problems. Firstly, it presents God as a kind of passive bystander. He's unable to interfere with human actions because if he did, he would violate the epistemic distance which he must maintain. That is, he's got to stay out of it because otherwise, of course, he'd compromise human freedom, not only in terms of moral behaviour, but also in terms of faith. And for faith to have value, it must be freely entered into, not coerced or pressured. If the person has no choice but to believe in God, then there's no value in it. There's no leap of faith. But this kind of helpless witness or benevolent spectator certainly did not sit well with some of the early church fathers. And St. Augustine, in particular, objected to any notion that cast shade on the authority of God. After all, if humans are choosing to either live by God's divine law or not, then ultimately it seems like they are the ones choosing who goes to heaven or not. It's a language that teachers are quite used to. You know, if you choose not to do your homework, you are choosing to put yourself in detention. We use this kind of language with the intention of putting the onus onto the student. It's not me dishing out detentions, it's you choosing to go into one. But this can't possibly apply to God, surely. Who goes to heaven can't be down to human choice. It has to be God, who's the arbiter of justice. And if God is omnipotent, he has to be the one to decide who is rewarded in heaven and who is punished in hell. According to Augustine, human nature, as created by God, is good. 
and the free will that he originally gave us makes us more important, more valuable than anything else in the created order. Basing his ideas firmly in his literal interpretation of the creation narrative in Genesis, he argued that originally humans were equally free to choose good or evil. But humans are now constantly attracted towards evil, that is, towards the things which they know are bad, which they don't even necessarily want to be doing, but can't help themselves because they are so weak-willed. In claiming this, Augustine is echoing St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, where he says, For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. Both St. Paul and St. Augustine trace the root cause of our sinful nature to Adam and the fall of man. All humans, according to St. Paul, were seminally present in Adam, which means that, as a result of man's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, our nature is now tainted, and we're all oriented towards evil. So where originally humans were created with a balanced nature, equally likely to do the good as to do the bad, now we are much more likely to do bad, to sin, because of the actions of Adam and Eve in eating the forbidden fruit. If God did nothing to intervene then, and remained just a passive spectator, his plan for humanity, his reason for bringing human beings into the world, would just go down the pan. Because if all of us are sinful, all are destined for hell, and none will be reunited with God. And for Augustine, this just couldn't be the case, because God is loving and just and wants humans to be reconciled to him. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Augustine used this teaching to develop what's known as his doctrine of irresistible grace. This is where God chooses on whom he will bestow his grace. That is, those who will have their free will oriented back towards the good. He says, and I quote, The potter has authority over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and the other for contempt. So it's only by the grace of God that humans can know which is the right path. And it's up to God to choose. It's a gift. Humans can't do anything to make themselves more likely to get to heaven. So this means that we can only escape from this inherited sinfulness if we receive grace from God. And there's no way that we can earn such grace or try to force God to give it to us by trying to be good. Now, St. Augustine was writing in the 4th century. And it was quite a long time before this was taken up and given legs by John Calvin, the Protestant reformer writing in the 16th century. According to Calvin, God only selected a few people to be saved. He called these the elect. And the rest, the damned, were destined for hell due to their fallen nature. It has biblical basis in the story of the sheep and goats found in Matthew 25, where the Son of Man is described as gathering the nations before him 
and separating the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Some, the goats, are going for eternal punishment, and some, the sheep, for eternal life. According to Calvin, the elect, having received God's grace, are more inclined to do good and demonstrate proper virtuous Christian values. The damned, on the other hand, being tainted by original sin, are more inclined to do evil. But you have no way of knowing which group you belong to. So, according to Calvin, there's still incentive to behave. Now, I'm not really sure how, because the group you belong to determined where you would spend eternity, and there's nothing you can do to influence God's decision over who goes where. Perhaps you didn't want to risk God changing his mind, but God's ineffable, so there's no chance of that. Or perhaps there's shades of Job here. God's wisdom and ultimate plan for humanity is so far beyond human comprehension that we shouldn't question God. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Instead, we should just accept and have faith. Actually, for those of you studying sociology, you might be familiar with what Max Weber called the Protestant work ethic. This idea has its roots in Calvinism because you would want your neighbour to think that you were one of the elect. So you'd work hard to become successful because, after all, success is an indication of God's favour. Strong trees produce good fruit and all that. And you can still see the echoes of this in modern capitalism. Anyway, sorry, I digress. The doctrine of the damned and the elect, Calvin believed, preserved the omnipotence of God because it meant it was God's decision who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It also preserved the justice of God because really, as a result of the fall, everyone should be damned. But God is ultimately just and merciful in giving grace to just a few. Calvinism was enormously influential in the 16th and 17th centuries because it formed the basis of Puritan belief in England. And so after the Civil War, Cromwell really promoted Puritanism throughout the country. And then following the restoration of the monarchy, it was taken across the pond to the New World by the clergy wishing to escape the fallout of the return of Charles II. So it became really widespread across New England as well. There are a few modern Protestant Christian denominations which maintain their Calvinist roots, in particular the Presbyterian Church in Scotland or the Southern Baptists in the US. However, certainly not all Protestant Christians agree with Calvin's ideas about predestination and many would reject it because of the apparent denial of human moral responsibility. The issue of why should I bother really isn't adequately addressed by Calvin and in addition many will see the resurrection of Christ as a universal demonstration of God's grace, with salvation being available for all, based on St Paul's teaching in Romans 5, which says, So one man's sin brought guilt to all people. In the same way, one right act made people right with God. That one right act gave life to all people. So this means that grace is actually universal, available to all, and the only thing the person has to do is open the door and let God in. And the majority of modern Protestant Christian denominations will favour this understanding. The issues with predestination are not the only problems we need to think about when it comes to human freedom and an omnipotent God. 
As the author of human nature, the creator of people who are capable of sin, some philosophers have asked whether it would have been possible for God to make humans who always freely choose to do good. This seems like a contradiction because, as we established in previous podcasts, being free means having the opportunity to have acted differently. This implies that if I'm going to do the right thing, which might often involve resisting temptation, then I want to be praised for having succeeded in doing so. This means it must be possible for me to have failed and do the opposite. If I want to be praised for resisting eating my daughter's chocolate, then there needs to have been a real possibility of me actually eating it. So let's remind ourselves of a definition. To be free means to act in accordance with my nature. I'm not free to fly, for example, or breathe underwater, as that's outside of my nature as a human being. However, it also doesn't mean that I'm equally likely to do X as to do Y, because that would just make my actions random. As we established in the previous episode, acting freely means in accordance with my wishes and desires, within the bounds of my human nature. This relates to what David Hume called the liberty of spontaneity, and it identifies internal causes to our behaviour, our nature, our beliefs, our desires, etc. And as long as I act in accordance with these, and not due to any external causes, like having a gun held to my head, then the compatibilists will claim it's a free action, for which I'm morally responsible. Now, according to the Bible, God knows each of us intimately well. He knit me together in my mother's womb, and he knows every hair on my head. God knows my nature so incredibly well that he knows what I'm likely to do in any given situation. He isn't causing the action, we're not talking about foreknowledge here, but just as I know what my three-year-old would do in the presence of a chocolate chip cookie, God knows what I will do in any situation because he's the author of my nature. Given that, the atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey argued that it's entirely plausible that I could still be regarded of as being free if God had actually given me an entirely good nature. According to Mackey, if I am able to freely choose the good on one or more occasions, then it's logically possible that I can choose the good on every occasion. And if I'm able to always freely choose the good, it's logically possible for everyone to always choose the good. He says, and there's quite a long quote coming up here, If God has made men such that they're free choices, they sometimes prefer what is good and sometimes what is evil. Why could he not have made men such that they always freely choose the good? If there's no logical impossibility in a man's freely choosing the good on one or several occasions, there cannot be a logical impossibility in his freely choosing the good on every occasion. God was not then faced with a choice between making innocent automata and making beings who enacted freely would sometimes go wrong. There was open to him the obviously better possibility of making beings who would act freely but always go right. 
So think of human nature as being on a spectrum, going from tickling kittens on one end, the nicest that humans can possibly be, through other nice actions like helping old ladies, to gradually not so nice actions like hitting little brothers, or worse things like lying or stealing, all the way around to the very worst things that humans can do. If being free means acting in accordance with my nature, then God could have given me a nature which stops halfway along that spectrum, meaning that I would be perfectly free to choose to tickle a kitten, or help an old lady, or make my mum breakfast in bed, or any number of other nice or good actions. In order for my actions to have been freely made, I don't need the whole spectrum. God didn't need to give humans a nature that could be so despicably evil. And it's for this reason, along with a few others, that Mackie refutes the free will defence as a response to the logical problem of evil. Ninian Smart, a hugely influential 20th century philosopher of religion, rejected Mackie's argument and called it a utopia thesis. He said, if we're to make truly moral choices, there must be a real temptation to overcome. If all of my choices are good, then the word or the concept of good becomes meaningless. Our understanding of what good means includes concepts such as temptation or courage, compassion, empathy, generosity. And all of these things become redundant if there is no concept of evil or suffering, if there's no bad end to the spectrum of human activity. John Hick also rejects Mackey's argument because he said, and here's a quote, God is able to create beings of any and every conceivable kind, but creatures who lack moral freedom, however superior they might be to human beings in other respect, would not be what we mean by persons. This is because central to Hick's version of the Irenaean theodicy lies the idea of soul-making. Humans must be free to develop into children of God, free to respond to the situations in which they find themselves, and part of that involves responding and learning from instances of evil. If everyone always chose to do good, albeit freely, then there would be no soul-making going on. Humans must be capable of entering into a personal relationship with their creator by a free and uncompelled response to his love. Hick draws an analogy with a hypnotist. Even if our hypnotised patient thinks they're acting freely, they are still being controlled by the hypnotist. And the purpose of our existence is not simply about rising above moral evil and the importance of love your neighbour. It is equally about the need to love God. As I said right at the beginning, according to Christianity, God doesn't just want humans who behave themselves and do the right thing. He wants people to choose to enter into a loving and personal relationship with him. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard presented a parable of a king and a peasant girl to demonstrate why free will was so important. In the parable, a rich king falls in love with a peasant girl. He draws up a legal decree which would force her to marry him. But then he worries that he'll never know if she really loves him. So he plans to impress her with his finest clothes. But then he worries that she'll only fall in love with his wealth and his power. 
Finally, he decides to be a peasant and try to win her love that way so that he can know that her love for him is genuine. The parable illustrates that God's only way of knowing we love him genuinely is to allow us to freely love him. Swinburne echoes this idea in claiming that a loving God wants his people to love him, not just follow the rules and do the right thing. So while perhaps God could have given humans a nature, which would mean we would always freely choose the good, he could not have designed humans so that they always freely choose to love him. And it's the combination of these two things, exemplified in the golden rule of Christianity, that constitute being fully human. The issue of human freedom crops up again and again in various different areas of philosophy of religion, from moral responsibility to the attributes of God, predestination, and of course, the free will defence as a response to the logical problem of evil. There's an enormous amount of literature out there for anyone who wishes to continue exploring the ideas I've touched upon here, but I hope you found this summary useful. On the A-Level RE blog, you can find a comprehensive list of the books and resources I use to create these podcasts, although they are forged from years of rather poorly kept personal teaching notes, which make tracing their provenance quite difficult. So apologies to anybody who feels they may have been misrepresented here. As usual, there are lots of links and teaching resources on the blog, which are free to download. And you can follow A-Level RE on Facebook and Twitter too. See you next time.